Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Folks, this is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering. Is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month for the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast. You can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right, here's the episode. Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... What does it mean to treat nationalism as a commodity? How do we consume nationalism in the marketplace? And what does it mean to produce national identity? In this conversation, NAM Center postdoctoral fellow Jiun Bang discusses the commodification surrounding territorial disputes in Northeast Asia, like the contentious Dokdo Takashima issue, and challenges some of the traditional assumptions behind nationalism. And Bang reveals that even the origins of MSG have a nationalistic flavor. All this and more on episode 67 of The Korea File. This episode was produced in collaboration with the University of Michigan's NAM Center for Korean Studies. Well, my building, which is the graduate uh, international studies building, it's, it was slightly an anomaly because it looked so modern. But the traditional buildings on campus tend to be not as modern in aesthetics. And so when you suddenly have this gigantic underground structure that is very postmodern <laughs> looking, I think it did look a bit disruptive. So from the top, it looks like a, the way they did the greens, it looks like a mini golf. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that, right? It looks like a mini golf kind of. When was Awa Women's University founded? Oh. 
18, that's a good question, 18, I feel like I yeah, should have the number for you, it's, it's quite older. old, it's, yeah. it's one of the first uh, universities that got accredited as a uh, four year all around college by who, the government. Who was it founded by? Was it founded by Protestant missionaries or something? Uh, it, it was, it was, um, that's why you have to go to chapel once a week. Oh. It has a, it has that kind of bent and you have to get, you get credits for going to chapel. And so there was a lot of domestic internal protest about that, whether it makes sense to force people to, uh, upon a certain religion. But, um, yeah, it was a Christian, uh, missionaries that founded the school yeah. for women and then it and why does it have a very interesting linguistic characteristic Ewa Women's University so there's a lot of controversy over that and I don't think there's a definitive this is why it became that but one of the arguments that got a lot of traction was that the founders thought that they didn't want to cluster or neutralize the distinct uniqueness of each individual woman into a plural of women. And so they wanted to just add the S and make it, you know, keep the individual in the collective. And so they decided to keep it. Very interesting. But Uh uh, that seemed to get a lot of traction, but no one really knows the sole reason for why it is stuck. But we'd like to think that was it. Jiun Bang, yes. you uh, graduated with your PhD from last year? From USC, Southern California. Okay, and now you are a postdoctorate fellow here at the NAM Center at the University yes. of Michigan. Before we begin, I'm a little interested too. You have a background in defense analysis in Korea. I do. You edited the journal for the Korean Defense Analysis Association? Yes, correct. What did that entail? So it's a in-house, or it started off as an in-house journal published by the uh, published by. A think tank that's funded by the Ministry of National Defense called KAIDA, so Korea Institute for Defense Analysis. And so the journal uh, soon became published under Rutledge. And then now I think it's back to in house publishing, but it's a journal published by KAIDA, the think tank. And so it's like any other SSCI registered academic journal that publishes articles related to security. And you made the transition academically from uh, defense analysis to studying nationalism as a commodity. I'm wondering yes. how you made that jump. That's a big question. I And I allude to this partly in the talk because so I was having a chat with a good friend of mine at the Japanese embassy in uh, Korea, Seoul. And at the time I was on the topic of, I was researching stuff about territorial disputes. And so he had told me in passing that he had a really good, great photo of, on the first floor, there's this Tokdo Chamti place, which is Tokdo tuna restaurant. And Tokdo is the disputed, disputed territory yes. between Japan and Korea. Yes, and it's ongoing. And so on the second floor of that tuna restaurant is a Japanese Asai draft beer pub. And so he had this great photo that embodied these two establishments on top of each other. And we had gone to talking about, wow, this is super interesting, uh, especially how the market can appropriate politics this way. And so it organically led to me thinking about, you know what, 
the more I thought about the topic, the more I started seeing instances of commodification where you would see tokdo everywhere. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if it was because it was on my mind or if it just happened to be prominent. And so that's what led me to thinking about the topic. How do you define nationalism? I think it helps to think about what is a nationalism in reference to patriotism. Because I think we often think of the two in very similar ways, if not synonyms. And so I think both terms need that component of self-identification with a, some kind of nation state and territorial integrity or sovereignty. But in the case of nationalism, it's along with that pride for one's country, I think you do often need that oppositional component. So do you have that target the other in mind? And in the case of Korea, that's Japan, uh, especially for my own research, because I looked at territorial disputes. And so for me, I think that oppositional component was important in describing nationalism. How do you define commodity? Goods, services, anything with a market rhetoric that you wouldn't typically think could be commodified, but is indeed has life form in the marketplace, in the language of the market, typically in terms of money and exchange value. So what does it mean to treat nationalism as if it were a commodity that can be consumed and produced or reproduced on the marketplace? I think one of the benefits, what does it mean? So one of the benefits of thinking about nationalism as a consumption activity or consumption and production activity is that Scholars have a tendency to think about nationalism as if it's a light switch. And so by that I mean, once you somehow get exposed to nationalism, which in the first place I'm not sure even how that really works, but say it exists in the air and you breathe it in, and once you breathe it in, then the light switch is on, and then thereafter you're supposedly a nationalist for eternity until... I don't know, some kind of rupture happens and maybe you're not a nationalist. And so there's this very strange way in thinking about nationalism or taking that identity for granted. And so for me, it was in thinking about, okay, if it's a consumption or production activity and you practice nationalism that way, then just as national consumption waxes and wanes, so can nationalism. And so it's a more fluid understanding of what it means to consume an identity. And so... It doesn't have to be a binary, you either have it or you don't, or if you have it, it's irrevocable and it's permanent. And so I think it gives me a better structure for thinking about nationalism that way. In your lecture today at the Nam Center Colloquium Series at the University of Michigan, you'll begin with the instructive example of monosodium glutamate, or MSG. We usually associate MSG with Chinese cuisine, but you say its origins are actually elsewhere. Correct. So I think everyone by now, they're very familiar with MSG, but I bring in MSG to foreground my talk because it's a great example of when or where a Chinese capitalist entrepreneur was successful in marketing the product in the Chinese market. And this was during the time in China when uh, there was a big 
national products movement. So the government and all the, the masses were very interested in this idea of purging the market of foreign influences and the slogans of buy China, they gained a lot of traction. And so uh, one of the capitalists or capitalist entrepreneurs, I should say, uh, Wu Yunchu, who founded the company Heaven's Kitchen, uh, you know, he was very successful about playing the market and to promote MSG for the Chinese market and in doing so pushing out the Japanese market that it was in competition with, uh, which had ironically first manufactured and really sold MSG. And so MSG became intertwined that way with Chinese identity through commodification, and that's why I brought it into the fold for my research. You say this sets the stage for the idea of consuming identity. What are some examples of consuming identity in the Korean context? Right, so in my presentation I will be talking about some of the goods that I had the privy to be exposed to, which were things like tokdo bread, and uh, to uh, ramen, which I both got to got a taste test of, and they were very good, <laughs> very tasty. What does the ramen taste like? It's slightly on the spicy side, but it's very marketable in the Korean market. It tastes very similar to the a very solid, good, spicy Korean ramen you get from those instant packages, and so uh, it also. Pr- Advertises that it use a hundred percent Korean um, wheat or flour, I think, and so that it has that going for it also, um, true to its I guess message that it contains about tokdo. My dear tokdo, gun gong gong lay. We sing a song for you today. My dear tokdo, sing. Sky, islands of Korea, lifting spirits high. Blue are gray, clear are cloudy. Your soul springs from our Taeguki. So, Dr. Bang, Dr. Lamian, any other Korean examples? Tokdo cookies. Uh, the examples are actually quite endless because once I looked at how many businesses were using the name of Tokdo in the company or their product, I found roughly 130 trademarks um, that I could that hadn't expired as of 2016 or that weren't rejected. And so you have all these companies using the name Tokdo in some way or another in their goods or service. So. Tokdo has become a flashpoint over the last 10 or 15 years for mm-hmm. nationalist sentiments. Mm-hmm. Are there other uh, commercial ways that we see that Evidenced. So another indicator I look at that I use as part of this rhetoric of commodification is what the state does from its end of commercializing the territory. And one of those efforts uh, related to a service, so tourism. And tourism is a popular area that scholars have looked at that gets to this idea of consuming nationalist identity but through experience. And so I also talk about in the presentation about how uh, the government had played with regulations so that it had really opened the floodgates for free tourism to the islands. And you can see if you look at the statistics, it just there's an exponential increase after 
these certain regulations were enforced. And so in that end, most of it was domestic consumption. So most of these are Koreans visiting Tokyo, not the global audience. Koreans so. expressing their nationalism by visiting Tokyo and by participating in that experience. Sure. Although I would be very careful not to assume that they were nationalistic before they went to the islands, because I think it's more of a process. And so they might have not been conscious of that before they had gone. But I think once they're there and they get the experience, that might trigger something in them. And so they might not necessarily be nationalistic before the experience. What do you think about, uh, with your analysis here, associating it with how you wave? Because I'm thinking K-pop, K-movies, K-dramas, K-everything is something that we see exported as a way of perceiving Korean identity. But when I think about Koreans consuming it, Koreans listen to K-pop because they like it, not because it's Korean necessarily. Do you think there's a connection there? To be honest, I haven't made that link to K-pop yet. But I'm a bit hesitant because I'm not sure if I see a nationalist component for K-pop. I think for me right now, K-pop, sure, it does have that, have that cultural element, but I think it's very thickly commercial. And so it has that profit-oriented base and the infrastructure that's geared towards making profit. And so... I would have to think about that more, but I'm not sure what the link would be from territorial sovereignty to something like K-pop, which is more commercialized. You've also suggested that the consumption of Korean identity introduces the idea of what it means to conceive nationalism as a practice or a sustained process rather than something emotional, something that's a feeling. Unpack that for us. So this goes back to my idea of nationalism not being like a light switch. So the binary of you either have it or you don't. And so I wanted just a way to look at it as a process. So how one maintains an identity as opposed to just how they first acquired or where it comes from. And so in that sense, I think nationalism as a practice, which has no real end point per se, you, it's a very everyday act. Uh, on a daily basis where you're constantly exposed or not exposed to this sort of narrative then which then triggers some kind of consciousness about your identity to the state and so that's sort of what I meant by nationalism as a practice and thinking of it as a practice that way. In your lecture you'll be talking about some of the commodification activities surrounding the territorial disputes among countries in Northeast Asia. We talked about Dokdo between Japan and South Korea. Are there other examples? Right, so China is a very interesting parallel to South Korea's case. And it's particularly interesting because when we talk about the nexus of capitalism and nationalism and how political products have life forms in the marketplace, you would think that China, because it's not entirely maybe capitalistic, that you think maybe the argument may not travel as well. But China in some ways resembles very much the activities of Korea because in their dispute with Japan over Senkaku or Diagutai Islands, the Chinese have also managed to really commodify uh, the island or make a lot of products with 
the messages about territorial sovereignty. Similar over to the Dokdo. Yes, yes. And it's amazing okay. how many different products that they've made uh, that contain that nationalist message. <laughs> and so you see the same thing in China as, I, as you do in Korea's case. Tell us a little more about the close connection between economics and politics in this context. Right. You can think of this in many different ways. But the most obvious one is, so I was thinking about the marriage between capitalism, capitalism and nationalism. And actually going back to the MSG case of the Chinese capitalist entrepreneur, he used some of the money that he had made from his businesses and tried to use that for state, uh, a cause bigger than himself. So the state cause, so he, I talk about this in the presentation where he donates military bombers to the nationalist government. And so he was very savvy that way that he could, he was very conscious of the fact that the two could be intertwined. This was prior to the revolution in 1949. Right, okay. before. And so he, in that sense, was aware that he could use all the two spheres of what are usually disconnected, the economics or the politics, that they could be combined and he could use the two spheres um, in that sense. And you see this, you see similar things when you talk to the Korean entrepreneurs that work on these domestic commodi uh, commodities on Dokdo, how they give some of their profits or as proceeds to these NGOs that work on Dokdo and protection of territorial sovereignty over Tokdo. And so again, you see them not being entirely capitalist in that sense because they are driven by other motives, but they also certainly have instrumental calculations about profits and business. And so again, you see the marriage between how, say, capitalism and nationalism work and how politics and economics can go hand in hand. Your lecture will also be challenging some of the traditional assumptions behind nationalism. Uh, what are some of the traditional assumptions and how will you be challenging them? So not to hark back to the light switch too much, but that would be one of the traditional assumptions about there's almost a binary character. That we turn on nationalism and turn it off through political rabble-rousing and the like. Right. And unfortunately, we know much more about, or we are more interested as scholars in when the light comes on than when the light goes off. Because as of now, we don't really know how the light turns off, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, because more people are interested in when nationalism leads to, say, conflict or leads to a certain explanatory variable. And so we know much less about how do we denationalize or how do we decrease nationalism. And so that's one task that's left um, to be pondered about. But the other assumption is, you know, the, and I call this the immaculate conception argument about because we're so interested in nationalism as causing something else, uh, say it's as such like conflict or war or violence, that we don't really know much about the process upon which that happens. And so we take for granted that, again, nationalism somehow is appealing to people and somehow moves people in a way to produce some kind of behavioral outcome. But we don't know what that channel or that mode is so much. And so that's also another you know, the immaculate conception idea of how nationalism travels. And so my argument was that commodification could be that one modality that 
in the way that nationalism travels and appeals to people and the masses. Jiun Bang is a postdoctoral fellow at the Nam Center for Korean Studies and a former associate at the Korea Institute for Defense Analysis. Jiun, thank you for speaking with the Korea File. Thank you. That's the Korea File for this week. To see Jiun Bang's full Nam Center undergraduate fellows lecture, look for You Are What You Eat, The Practice of Obtaining and Maintaining Nationalist Identity on YouTube. While you're there, subscribe to the Nam Center's YouTube channel at Unish and CKS. That's U-M-I-C-H-N-C-K-S. Music on this episode is John Lopker's My Dear Docto and Kim Kyung-min's Docto, Docto, Docto. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Seoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Korea File there too and on Twitter at The Korea File with daily links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. And we're taking a short hiatus this May. But check back later in the summer for more episodes of this podcast. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.